This podcast was produced by Morley Radio. Artcast is presented by Matt G, who is Programme Area Manager of Fine Art at the Chelsea Centre, which is part of Morley College London. The podcast is a series of informal discussions with professional artists and designers, accompanied by students who are studying with us at the Chelsea Centre. In terms of students this time, we have Karen Mulville from our Access to HE in Art and Design. We will also be joined by the collaborative street art pair Fail, which comprises of Patrick McNeil and Patrick Miller. Fail's work consists predominantly of painting and printmaking, they show a range of work from sculpture, paintings to large-scale murals, stencils and even prayer wheels. They work on the street and within museums and galleries using culturally driven iconography and critique on capitalism and consumerism. Notable exhibitions include one at the Tate Modern in 2008 which featured a 240 square foot image of a Native American in full regalia amidst a shredded collage of pulped images and found signage affixed to the Tate's exterior. Temple was a work in 2010 which was a full scale church in ruins in Lisbon. Tower of Fail was a 40-foot tower of wooden blocks combined with screen prints, which was a collaboration with the New York Ballet School, which was displayed at the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts. In 2015, they had a major retrospective at the Brooklyn Museum, which featured a return of the temple from Lisbon, which uh, combined with large-scale marble sculptures. Wishing on You in 2015 was a 7-foot high kinetic sculpture placed in New York Times Square. So the first question we ask all our guests is, what is your favorite color and why? Um, Well, my favorite color is blue, any shade of blue. I like blues, probably sky and ocean related to those calming kind of places. And I just, it also looks very nice on my wife. Uh, My favorite color is green. Um, I was born on St. Patrick's Day, so maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, but also it's just, a, I think it's a really fascinating color that mixes kind of with everything in just a really unique way from being like a dark to a light and just giving uh, a richness that, I don't know, to the color I've always loved. So how did you first come up with the name Fail? I know you've made reference to the 1986 Challenger um, and especially in your earlier work and you began as a collaborative pair in 1999? Um... It was kind of a serendipitous kind of uh, happening because uh, originally we were called A Life and uh, we'd been putting up um, that name on the street in New York for about a year. And um, right before we were about to start putting up a bunch of posters for the first time, I just moved to the Lower East Side and found out that there was a store on the Lower East Side called A Life. And my roommate was like, hey, before you start putting up all these posters, you might want to go down and take a look at this shop. And I said, like, what kind of store is it? They're like, it's a shoe store. And I was like, eh, well, I don't understand what the problem would be. But anyways, I went down to the shoe, the store and it was, uh, uh, the store had been up for about a year and they were kind of like the, one of the first stores to kind of cater to like art, retail, uh, street culture. They did uh, kind of a hybrid model of retail and art, art, uh, mostly focused on urban art stuff. And I met the owner of the shop and he was like, um, you know, you can put up the the posters, but it's going to end up looking like advertising for the store. And uh, riding the train home that night, started looking at the word of life and just kind of uh, seeing what words came through the anagram of that word. And there was like file A, there was Alfie, um, another mixed up word, and then fail. And when fail kind of came up, I was like, I showed it to Pat and talked to we talked about it and we're like, this is kind of interesting. Like you have to fail to succeed or taking something with like maybe a negative connotation and making something positive for it. And we like the duality of it and that the word of life was kind of hidden in it. And um, that's how we came to the name fail. We just ended up changing our name to fail. Great. 
and this recurring motif which appears as a kind of logo of a with the with the dog is can you say a bit more about this you know a lot of the early stuff was about putting stuff up on the street and a lot of the narratives and things that were putting up at the time were um um like uh more complex narratives. So you had to be up close to see them on the street. Um, and we were kind of noticing uh, Shepherd's Obey uh, icon at the time and thinking about trying to make uh, a graphic that could be read from a distance. And we had been working with uh, that dog icon as a stencil and it just kind of got uh, incorporated into fail as like a icon that we could place on the street that we thought was impactful and uh, could be um, viewed from a distance. Yeah. I think there's something about that, about, you know, especially street work that's just really, you want to have that visceral quality where it just really creates a, an, an emotion and a response very quickly. And, gives like an entry point either to dive into something further if there's a narrative or just kind of captivates you right away. And um, that, the, the, that image has always just been really great, you know, to see at scale and, um, and kind of do that in such a simplistic way. I was just wondering whether you've always worked together um, and whether you work separately now or sort of ever, or whether you've always been a, a sort of collaborative in your work. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess we, we've really worked together pretty exclusively since, um, since the late nineties and early two thousands. Um, you know, Patrick and I met the first day of high school when we were 14, uh, through, he had just moved from Canada and, uh, we shared the same name and that really just led to, um, a friendship, uh, in, in art and making, we had the same art teacher, the same classes. So we were always trading sketchbooks and I think just really loved, you know, obviously became good friends, but also just loved that energy of a shared passion together. And I think when we, we started uh, university together as well, and it was just always a part of our, it was always a part of our friendship and always a part of what we did. Like, it was just fun to kind of, you know, be in sketchbooks together. And it was, it was always something that we were kind of looking at and thinking about. And when Patrick went uh, to college uh, abroad um, uh, and, and uh, to Nottingham and, um, and then came back, uh, he had kind of brought back like a whole new energy of things. And then he went to New York and I went to Minneapolis to, we both went to art school and there was always just this like, this energy between the two of us, um, never really competitive, really just more of like a, th this just kind of excitement. Like uh, we'd have spring break, or we'd, we'd have a vacation holiday and, and, you know, he would come to Minnesota or I'd go to New York and we'd just stay up all night in the print studio. I'm just making, making, making. And I think then, you know, starting to see what was happening on the street and starting to just tap into that energy and have really an outlet for all this creativity that was happening um, I think maybe in the same way, like a band makes music, you know, there was just something about coming together and bringing the way we both look at it and bringing our strengths and, and, uh, to that and, and just, and just really going, um, and really ever since that's pretty much been the way it is. I mean, we're both good at totally different things and, and, you know, our weaknesses and strengths really offset each other in, in, I think a great way. And, um, yeah, I mean, we're always, you know, again, kind of puttering around and doing little things in the background. But, uh, you know, fail is our livelihood and it's uh, a creative journey. It's a friendship. It's our business. So, um, you know, we really kind of put everything into into that. And and that's, we've you know, we've been really fortunate to be able to explore that in a variety of different ways over the years in, in, a, in a lot of different mediums and, and all those things. So that's really made um, this kind of exchange of, creativity, energy, art, fun, you know, the ups and downs of all of it, and then families and all that. And uh, it, it, it's it's really created a great environment for creativity, friendship, art, and, and just making where I don't think either of us really ever feel stifled in a sense and that we can't bring something to it. Wow, amazing. Um, and so you, you both bring something different to the table then in your partnership because you said that you both have different strengths and weaknesses. Do you, do you feel that you have very different things that you bring to the table apart from all the kind of, you know, the Venn diagram of you two? There's a, 
you know, your sort of the stuff that crosses over that you both do well, but the things that you feel are both your strengths um, that are separate. Do, do you think they are very different? I do. I think we're 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 quite different. Um, just from a process standpoint, um, from an analog and digital standpoint, from um, creative uh, uh, standpoint, and how we um, how we move and process things. Um, I think in, in the most simplistic way, I'm a thinker and Pat's a doer, and uh, you know we both uh, we both benefit from. I mean, we both do the same things too, but that is our nature. Um, you know, sometimes I'll overthink things and not do enough. And sometimes Pat will do too much and not think things through enough. And I think that's that crossover uh, lends itself to to being, you know, great when it really works at its best. Sorry, Pat, I didn't mean to cut you off. But no, not at all. Just, just building on that. Well, that's, that's, that's great to hear. It feels quite inspiring to hear such a kind of successful creative partnership because uh, it must be quite unusual Um to have such a long-term creative partnership. I mean, I'm just starting off as a student here and learning about uh, different things, but I um, it seems quite unique that you have had, you have your friendship and your, you know, your work that you do together. And it's been a long-term thing that sounds like it's been successful personally and, and, you know, commercially for a long time for you both. So it feels very inspiring to hear that. I think at the core of it, it's the foundation, having grown up with each other from such a young age and like having that core understanding of um, each other has really led to a really strong foundation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I you know, it, it is really just, you know, everyone, you know, each other's quirks and <laughs> things, you know, when to push and you know, when to let go. And, uh, and I think with the work, you know, the thing that, I think has always just been the the thing we come back to is we're always trying to get to that same feeling of being like a really great place. Um, and we, and sometimes that's different for both of us, but I think we both recognize like we're both chasing that same thing. And when we both get there, it's an amazing feeling. And sometimes we don't, and we learn from those moments and the thing that one of us loves or, or doesn't like, you know, somebody else would be like, that's the best part of the whole show. And then you're like, Oh my God, you know, that happens just all the time. So it's a nice learning process and it keeps you humble. And it's also nice to share this journey with because you know, a creative life is filled with a lot of ups and downs and uh, and a lot of, you know, just ideas and excitement. And you're always chasing that. And then, you know, you kind of do it every time you, you bring come up with a new buddy work or a new show or something like that. And uh, it's been really nice to be able to share that with someone. Mm. So which one of you sort of is more inclined to deal with the collaborative part of your practice? Because you've dealt with and worked with people in music and fashion, shoe design, or even making a toy. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the collaborations and the challenges you might have faced and what you sort of enjoy about those. I think collaborations always kind of been at the core of the practice from the very beginning, whether it's been Patrick and I collaborating in our sketchbooks or putting work up on the street and the collaboration that takes place there with um, the elements or people's interaction with the work. Um, and that kind of, uh, letting go and being open to like the possibilities when other voices come into the, into play with collaboration. I just think it, it makes for a richer kind of more exciting journey. I think it's just kind of always been a natural part of the practice and we've always kind of been open to it and kind of enjoyed that, that idea. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally do think stemming from the street, it really made certain things a little less precious or, or not less precious, but just being more open to that idea of serendipity and that there's always something to learn and there's always something to kind of come through the process. I mean, we're very, very process focused. The journey is definitely the, the destination uh, time and time again. And, you know, and I think we're trying to learn and trying to stay open to that learning. I also think the fact that we studied design, you know, I, both of us wanted to study fine art, I think, but sort of re realized that design maybe offered um, while we both really love typography and, and I think, you know, graphics and these things uh, anyway, there was just this idea that we could find a job coming out of school a little more easily to support, you know, the fine art aspirations that we had. Um, but I think understanding the, the design process and that 
that idea of there, there's a problem to solve or being open to understanding information and then looking at it in a way to, to try to generate a desired outcome, I think also opens us up to that idea of being open and, and trying to like work with different variables to create something. I was going to ask as well, do you sort of prefer working on the street or within the big institutions or do you like working with both for varying reasons? I'd say both for varying reasons. And it's changed over time. Like there was a time that the, I'd say 90% of the practice was focused on doing work on the street. And it felt like a very special time and place. There was something that uh, kind of changed over time with like the commodification and the, um, the evolution of street art, how it became more of um, sanctioned in a way by cities turned to more of a mural culture and drifted away a little bit from its uh, illegal roots to something a little bit more um, sanctioned. And uh, I don't know, just maybe think about it and look at it in a different way. Institutions have always been kind of um, part of the practice. We've always worked with different institutions and I feel like that's kind of been important in contextualizing the practice and um, and, and creating dialogue and conversations about things. The street, I'm always drawn to, but um, it's kind of like, um, it kind of comes and goes. It's kind of hard to explain. Well, the two really feed off each other, uh, you know, and they did, they did for a long time, especially in the beginning. I think part of it's being in New York City and just the amount of, of stimuli and the amount of just stuff everywhere. And, you know, the things you see on the street, just in the simplest walk um it's so alive in that way so that you're always and just so visually alive and you're kind of always seeing things and taking from that in a way um whether it's something you find on the street or whether it's you know a construction object or metal or signage or all these things it, it always was something that i think we were taking from the street into the studio looking at you know creating something from it and then oftentimes bringing it back out onto the street and then looking at how that functioned and then bringing it back inside. And so it was sort of continually building off those processes. A symbiotic kind of loop. And, you know, it's also just changed too, right? Like in the early days of the street, it was just so amazing to like be able to get work out there from, from you know, being in college. And like, wow, you get this piece up on the street and a couple of people photograph it. And then, then maybe it was going to be in a magazine. And all of a sudden, like five to 10,000 people might see this, you know, which was just mind blowing. Now it's like on Instagram, a single post is you have way more views than, you know, an exposure than, than you did back then. But there's also just so much noise. And um, in the early days of Street Art 2, I think it was just such a small circle of people, you know, doing it, especially on an international scale that made it like this little club and it was very insider and the people that kind of like saw it understood it and i think as that's grown and again i think as it was more commercialized and all these things it just it just became um more and more saturated in a way that changed it probably for us especially because you know we just seen the arc whereas if you're new to it you're kind of new to all those elements and things but i think that's always that's always been like an interesting part of watching the evolution of kind of like street street culture street art and um you know, urban art in general. And are there any particular cities in the world um, that sort of hold quite a special place in your heart for the sort of, I mean, I recently went to Lisbon, that for me had a real sort of, it was a real microcosm of street art of, of varying kinds. You know, you've got people like Vils chiseling into the walls and just, it just felt, yeah, it was, it was just really unique sort of vibe to that place. I was wondering if you could talk about any cities that you particularly hold close to your heart. I think these cities that hold like uh, rich history and, and textures architecturally, Lisbon's special because there's also so many tiles and different surfaces there. And just the layering of these older surfaces with these new surfaces creates for something really special. I felt like Barcelona had a bit of that. I just got back from Mexico City a week ago and it was completely amazing in that way. Just like the the richness of the city from a historical standpoint, architectural and surface standpoint was really inspiring. Yeah, I think there's also just uh, to the way cities kind of gentrify and clean up. And a lot of that 
goes away. It, you know, we got to uh, do a project in Ulaanbaatar uh, at one point and just going out on the street there in Mongolia was, you know, incredible because you had all these kind of surfaces that were not polished and just like filled with history and, but still, you know, like a raw metal surface and these things. So to do work in that city was really unique, but so many cities have changed so much uh, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years that some of those places are a little harder to find. Yeah. So you definitely got this sort of interest in an, like an urban palimpsest, which I mean, it's something I'm, I'm interested within my work, the sort of layer of advertising billboards and collaging. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how you sort of forage and sort of collect and acquire these materials? Um, is, is some of the sort of stuff you paste up on the street historical as well? Do you ever use like original material from decades ago or? We used to, when we did a lot more wheat pasting, we would go to like um, uh, thrift markets and grab like um, old uh, like office paper or um, architectural blueprints or um, reclaimed like uh, posters from the grocery store and stuff like that and, 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 and use that because it was free materials. But um, um, yeah, I don't feel like we... Um, use so much of the street materials in the work as much as we used to. Like uh, when we go to a city back in the olden days, we used to just like collect all the actual materials from the street and build the entire show on those materials where it's like now a lot of the um, stuff that we make is pretty much done in the studio and then brought to the exhibition. Um, still inspired by those things like, um, been looking at uh drop cloths used for like uh, or not drop cloths but packing blankets um just i i think we still get inspired by some of those materials to work on but they're they're i, I wouldn't say they're as much a part of the practice as they were in the earlier years well, to that point you know if you're spending more time in the studio you become inspired by the objects around you uh so you know packing blankets for work coming and going is uh is around a lot more i think I think part of it is just, you know, time, uh, because having kids and things like that, it just where you're home more and, um, you're a little bit, you, you know, you're not traveling as much, uh, makes a big difference when we do shows in different cities. A lot of times we'll go out and do a scouting trip and just go photograph and, uh, go to vintage stores and really just try to understand the history of that city, the ephemera. I, you know, I think our process is very similar to like a DJ making music where it's, we're sampling all these different elements. And in a lot of ways, it, be, it feels very musical, you know, and it, it, it's kind of trying to hit these different notes and trying to find these different rhythms with the work through making a series of images, textures, patterns that hopefully reflect something back to either the city or a pop culture, you know, kind of lens uh, or a historical kind of um, elements of significance and then all through our filter. And, you know, I think that's really is what it's about is kind of how that transformation takes place and how we put it through the the blender and then come back out to, to remold it and make something that, you know, is fail. And there's like fascination in tiles. When, when, when did this sort of fascination become about? Cause you, in 2010, you had that piece temple in Lisbon and you've also made a work which included in excess of uh, 9,000 uh, hand-painted tiles. Is, is that sort of a purely aesthetic thing or is it like a link to architecture or any particular ideas? I mean, that's a great example. We went to Lisbon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got super inspired by those materials and the tiles and then looking at like Della Robbia and, you know, all these kind of uh, reliefs and things that you find through the city. I mean, Lisbon was just such an incredible to, to the points Pat was making before, you know, mix of history and then commercialism and, you know, ideas of art and architecture and, and historic commercialism and just trying to understand those narratives through time, trying to look at like how figures are represented in public spaces, the stories those tell, which, you know, historically has been more through religion, but to us, it was understanding what those icons were about and then how to bring that back through, you know, through a more modern framework and, and kind of tell those modern stories about society or the things that we are searching for, the things that we find sacred and profane. And, and, 
you know, and looking at those materials and understanding again, how we can bring them back and, and tell that through a modern light. So temple was very much that it was, it was looking at like how to re retell these stories of what we hold sacred and what we pray for in a modern society using those elements uh, historical uh, and modern to kind of share those narratives. And it was great because in Lisbon, it was like, you'd have people coming up with their like go Lisbon book thinking this was, you know, a, a historic relic when, you know, really it was just a, a sculpture that was there for four weeks, which was crazy. I think we're also inspired by things that are modular. I mean, when you think about like advertising on the street and repetition of posters and these types of things, the tiles, how they repeat and things that become modular, quilt making, um, all this kind of piecing together, how posters are laid on the street and then overlapped over one another. I think any any type of modularity seems to be uh, something that draws us in and tiles are definitely one of those things. Yeah, I think that also relates back to the way you would compose, you know, the way you would compose music if you were sampling different bits and pieces to bring, you know, put it together the way we do cut and paste. Even if you look at it down to like the simplest of there's two of us coming together to make something new. It's always been about taking all these little bits and pieces, bringing it together to make something new. So that's kind of uh, the gestalt of that idea, I think, has really just come through again and again in, in our practice and in our work and and the things that we create mm. and do you make music yourselves i mean i know when we were emailing originally you said you were opening a club yeah no, no we don't make music but it's been a huge inspiration you know i guess it is for all of us in a lot of ways but um i think again just understanding like the process of making music uh, or making uh, motion-based work or those things through time just becomes something we're connected to pretty heavily. Um, yeah, we did. We, we opened our second nightclub. Uh, we have one in Detroit and one in New York, which is an extension of uh, Deluxe Flux, which is a project we actually opened in London in 2010, which is really based and inspired by, you know, our experience of going to arcades as kids. And I think seeing, you know, just these incredible spaces where it's like just so visually stimulating and the you know the sounds the the stories coming to life through the video games but then the the objects themselves in the in the arcade cabinets and the tokens and just kind of that whole world was something that was a real strong inspiration and you know we had sort of done it over 12 years through museums and pop-ups and all these different things and um that's when when one of our partners uh gallery partners floated the idea of turning it into like a permanent space and we just said as long as we can weave music into that and it's kind of grown from there so with the like arcade machines and video games um i heard once you said in an interview also talking about this combination of sort of seediness and elation yeah we were talking about these places in our youth you know where you're kids and you go in there but you also had adults in there and there was drug dealing going on in there and it was just a strange world where these two worlds kind of came together and like that was unique to to the arcade experience. Yeah, I think just those stages of life and also the things you're tuned into, you know, where uh, the, the difference between one age to a couple years later, the things that you're tuned into and that incredible layered microcosm that, you know, arcades are and were. And I guess in that way that clubs can be too. But, you know, I think for us, it's about really creating this like art installation first um, and then just delivering this experience where you can really like go and dance. And, um, you know, I think from so many years of doing shows, Deluxe Flux has always been probably our most fun show to do because it just people let go. They're not, you know, just looking at paintings on the wall and, you know, sipping wine and like having these kind of conversations. It's really about, it's again, it's about that visceral experience of being there, of, of hearing the sounds of playing the games of interaction of bringing the art to life, which is, you know, through through both the arcades, through our puzzle boxes and things like this. We've always, and I think probably stemming from the street and just like people, you know, tearing a poster or writing something on it. Uh, there's always been this excitement and how do you engage the viewer and let them interact with the work in a way. And Deluxe Flex really was like the most incredible full sensation of that. And everyone just always has so much fun. You hear people laughing and you hear music and like, you know, a lot of a lot of like street culture roots and things that just all felt like that show really 
authentic. Yeah. It, 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 again, visceral and just like you feel it, you know, and you experience it. And it's not just kind of having that like more singular experience of like you looking at a painting on the wall and kind of having this inner, inner like idea about it. it. It's, it's a real like outward shared experience. And that's really important from time to time, especially, you know, as, as artists. Yeah. There's this real visceral element to your work, real tactility, not only you creating sort of immersive installations, but you're creating work that people interact with, play with, and really exper- experience. I guess on the flip side of that is the sort of world of NFTs. Is that something you'd ever consider or have you moved into that territory before? And I wondered if you had any specific opinions on that sort of field. We've done some NFTs. You know, it's a fascinating, I mean, conceptually, it's just fascinating. A few things, you know, it's always amazing to me that we started selling our work online really early compared to a lot of people. And it was always just amazing that people would buy work, seeing this tiny little JPEG, you know, and, and having trust that like there, that this thing is going to show up and it's going to be, you know, this wonderful piece. Um, And then, and then I guess over time, you know, how like projects come and go and really all you're left with is this image, uh, you know, on your computer or your phone. And so there is a real value in that digital kind of image and and the way like maybe we have especially with kids these days you know i think stuff is not as important so much as like the the world that is happening virtually uh, or or their avatar and like spending money in a game to you know build out a character so i i see all those things kind of happening and it, it is fascinating and i do think we're not far away from you know you have you have a screen that essentially looks just like paper and, um, you know, you have this digital thing that you collect, you know, as as far as watching the wave of it as this commodified thing and all that, you know, those things come and go. And I think I think it will certainly find its place. But, uh, you know, that's going to take time. And, and I do think there's a, a real great opportunity there for artists to to create in that world, especially for, you know, vision, for, for like motion based artists and those things. It's it's great to, for them to have a place to kind of deliver that work. And um, how political do you ever want your work to be seen? Or do you prefer to keep statements relatively passive within your work? I think we've always kind of erred more on the sense of uh, passive passivity. I feel like we've, you know, politics are like kind of come and go. And it just, I don't know, try to generally stay away from it. Yeah, I think we're a little more interested in, you know, relationships, experiences, the kind of things that we're all searching for on a, maybe on a slightly deeper level and, and playing with that a little bit, you know, the, the things that are always, I think like, like Pat said, it's, you know, politics do come and go and they change through time. And, but the things that don't ever go away are love and fear and, you know, the, maybe the bigger emotions behind it and, and sort of in humor and, you know, so it's trying to tap into some of that stuff. That's maybe a little bit more, um, a shared experience that we can all relate to. Yeah, that makes sense. We might have a new prime minister by the time this airs. Um, <laughs> it's interesting hearing you say that. And I wondered whether um, as your lives have changed and now I think you both said you have families, um, whether sort of having that experience and, you know, you're not traveling as much because you have sort of families, whether that's you feel your work in some way reflects the change in your life as, you know, we, you know, all of us kind of get older, or if you have a family, if you have children, whether you sort of see if, if both of you are having that experience, whether you see it coming through in your work in some way. Absolutely. I think, I mean, the, the, the practice is a spiritual practice that's connected to life and, family is life and i i think uh yeah it's you uh, i think it comes through in the the stories we tell and the, uh the work we produce and yeah I, I think they're they're just tied together in a way that are inseparable you know yeah and and, and as culture has changed in those things the stories you tell you know you, you there's a sensitivity that changes and there's also you become more sensitive to things i think when you're younger you see it through a totally different lens even things like guns and things like that, that have really just changed, especially in America. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's just kind of fascinating. Some of the objects that would show up in work, you know, early on to now. Yeah. And I guess, I guess to be fair, you know, even back to the political thing, like 
it's a thing to say that we're fortunate enough not to be in a place where like there's sort of these these really extreme dense political things and there have been those times especially in america where that has come up and we've certainly tried to make things that acknowledge it or are sensitive to it so it's not like we're it's not like we we don't think about those things at all but um yeah or having a daughter even you know has certainly changed uh, a lot of a lot of things and looking at the world through her eyes and you know so i guess like anyone um you know of course it changes over time and and not being uh not being traveling as much and some of the domestic you know things we deal with find their way into the work in ways that are funny to us and do you ever get them involved in the making process yes we do absolutely well just now that they're in starting to kind of enter into like their teenage years and those things they're much more fascinated by what's going on and you know a part of it um Pat's oldest son, Denim, actually the NFTs we did, he made all the music for, um, which was really fun to work with him and probably also kind of funny for him to see our creative process, you know, and <laughs> see the things that I care about versus the things that his dad cares about, um, which wasn't lost on on us, I don't think either, that, you know, having having that mirror to like our world through him Um I know it's it, it, it's also just super cool to see the world through their eyes and the things that they're into and you know what culture looks like to them at that time because really that age of like probably 13 to 22 or something is just it's it, it's by far the most ins- inspiring and impactful time of your life and you know everything will always resonate through that lens so it's it's cool to see how much stuff you sort of remember and reflect on when you look at it through their eyes I think even from an early standpoint, just watching how they colored and like, um, you know, you'd have them in the studio for a day and they would be in there painting and you'd be working on something. Uh, I'd have like these modular paintings we were working on and we always painted on one side of them and the kids would take them and paint the back side of it. And you're like, started, it just make you look at things different. So it was nice just to have their creative energy and get inspired by that. Yeah. And now, you know, we're at the point where, we, you know, have to be teachers of sorts, right? Because you're trying to communicate these things and our kids are creative and and trying to like help them understand the creative process and how to think about those things. And, you know, that's also been just like, you're a little more forced to try to talk about that with them and try to share that journey a little bit. So that's also been an interesting way to kind of look at how you communicate what art is and what the creative process is like and, and how to sort of tap into that and yeah, making that connection. Okay. And have you got like a particular system when it comes to printmaking sort of any particular mediums that you prefer printmaking, or is it a very sort of non-precious sort of experimental process that ends with something like quite precious and refined uh, with hand finished elements and sort of combination of pasting and all sorts of techniques? Well, the silk screening has kind of been the core of the practice since the beginning. And uh, at its roots, it didn't start off uh, from a, a traditional um, graphic design silk screening type kind of uh, modellum where you would like um, have a table and locks and do all the registration and make additions. Uh, it started in um, a fashion school where they printed yardage of fabrics. Um, so most of the students in that class were printing yardages of fabric. And we would lay the sheets of paper out down the table and, and kind of freeform, just really like loosey-goosey kind of printing. And um, that kind of set the bones for like how we print today. It, it's a pretty loose style of silk screening little messy, a little dirty, uh, kind of open to uh, mistakes. Usually when we're doing additions, we'll do like a, a five or six unique variants. Usually the one that is the most difficult in the set turns out to be the most interesting by the end because you just kind of keep pushing it. And then um, from there, um, if we like uh, one of the six, we'll set off on making an addition from it. And uh, that's kind of how we've always done our additions. But um, it's always been pretty fast and loose and a little unconventional. 
Um, so, yeah, I was just wondering if you could give any advice to people who'd like to go and sort of progress and start, start a career working on the street or working as a an artist within the street art forum, if there's, there's any sort of advice you give them in terms of building confidence and starting up. Well, maybe McNeil can speak better to that side of it, but I would first start with, I think that it's really about process. It's really about doing, it's really about doing it every day. I mean, art is really like, uh, it's like a muscle and it's really about training the brain to connect with the hand to bring things into the world in, in the most fundamental way. It's really about that connection between an idea and bringing it into reality. And the process of, of doing that a little bit every day, whether that's drawing or sketching or making, you know, just it's really, really that. I mean, even in a metaphysical way, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of about manifesting these things into the world and, and a, as a creative person being able to come up with these ideas and make them a reality. And I really think that process uh, is important and it's something you really have to do. You can't just be thinking about those things all the time. It's, it's really about training your brain and and trying to find ways to to make those things a reality and keep pushing. And I think for the street, you know, it's really, for us, it was just an opportunity to get the work out there in a bigger way and just go do it. I mean, it's, you know, it's always come a lot. It's always come a lot easier to McNeil. It's it, for me, it's, I, I don't get quite the same thrill. So I can see it through that lens. And I, you know, when I, when I do do it, it's always amazing and it's so fun and it's very exhilarating to get work out there and see it live um, and see it be in a public environment where anything can happen. It's totally different than a gallery show. You know, it's, it's less precious. It's alive in the world and people will see it. And I, and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of great ways to do that. That is really simple and doesn't have to be destructive. And it, you know, it can just be a platform for, for your work and your voice and getting it out there. Have you found it um, sort of easy during your careers to keep sort of going? So sort of, because you, know, you talked about sort of doing it sort of every day and sort of training your brain, and it's like a muscle which I um, you know, I was interested to sort of hear, and I, I agree with. But just having the motivation to kind of keep going when maybe you're not producing stuff that you love, or you think it feels like you're pushing treacle uphill. Have you? Is there any way you found that you've been able just to keep going through those times where you just don't feel like doing anything? Yeah, like I said, it's a spiritual practice because it's uh, it's staying disciplined to put that time in five days a week, but also give yourself the space when you need the space to rest. And sometimes it's not always about making the art. It's about sweeping the floor or... Um, doing something within the studio um, to stay busy. But I feel like as long as you're always kind of like putting in that motion and just staying open, I mean, it's, you know, life, it's ups and downs. You're going to, you're going to kind of have to push through that and find, find things to kind of like um, help out when, when, when you are creatively frustrated and, and that doesn't always mean like trying to sit down and hammer it out. Sometimes you have to like go for a walk or go to a gallery or go, you know, meditate or do something just to like break that up because um it's a marathon and i think it's about finding the things that are not precious to you it's about finding a way to express yourself or or have that just that that visceral connection to the to the page through you know for me it's doodling i i just every i am always writing and doodling but it never it really never goes anywhere so i don't have to worry about it being good bad or otherwise it just it can just flow and I think writing is that way for me too. I, I I really enjoy the process of writing, and oftentimes it's it's not what we do. So I can, you know, I can just jot down a little idea, or I, I think it's whether it's making a mark on a page, whatever it is. But it's not the work. It's not the thing you're going to put out there. So you can you don't have to be precious. And I mean, a lot of this is me telling myself these things. But yeah, I think finding that thing like that that isn't the thing you have to be critical of, but can just let you get it out is important to, to find a connection to. Yeah, the daring is 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 as important as the thinking. Sometimes you just gotta do. And sometimes those doings, you, you think, oh, this was a waste of time. But all of a sudden, like a month or a year later, something presents itself and you're like, that thing that I thought was 
useless here. This would be amazing for this. So it's just, you know, staying open to the mistakes, staying open to like experimenting, trying things that make you uncomfortable and uh, just embracing that. Yeah. And keeping that creative muscle going, as you say, like, like taking pictures, you take, if photographers take hundreds of pictures to find that perfect shot. And I guess it's the same with writing and uh, doodling and, Absolutely. And that's the cool thing today is like your phone is basically like a scanner. You know what I mean? It's like, um, I mean, that's one thing I love about working digitally is that it's just, it, you can throw those photos into things and, and just kind of uh, explore and, or work it in, especially with printmaking, you know, we you can just photograph all these surfaces and then bring them into a print or something like that. And I don't know, there's, there's so much around there. It's again, it's really just being open and trying to stay fascinated and not be too critical at times and enjoy the richness of, of the creative world around you. Mm. And while we're talking about logistics of creating art and putting it out there, have you ever faced any sort of backlash or controversy to your work that you put out there for any particular reason? And, and I was wondering if you could talk to us about how you dealt with that. I feel like little things here and there. I don't know. Maybe I'm uh, uh, forgetting in a way that's helpful. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't remember being like super controversial or anything like that. I remember print releases back in the day, there was like problems there, but it was more, it wasn't so much about the work. It was more about logistics. Um, yeah. I think, you know, we've, we've changed our bodies of work and our styles a lot to varying degrees of success and things. And that's, you know, maybe not the easiest or, um, as appreciated by like our audience and fans, but we're again, always on that journey and we get excited about things and want to explore and want to abstract and then bring it back. And, you know, I, I think you have fans and they are vocal and uh, they're critical and, you know, having to, having to take those things into account and appreciate them and then let them go. I think it was David that was talking about this in his podcast, but it's so true. You know, you have a thousand people say great things about work, but that one is the one that you remember. Um, so you've got to be careful how you filter those things. And, you know, you try to be sensitive to it. We've certainly a lot of cultural references and all those things into our work. And, you know, there's, there's times where you, again, you have to be more sensitive and, and try to look at it through other lenses, but um, you got to keep going too. I think there's a stigmatism maybe of street art too. That's always been a thing that's coming with blessings and come with the curse as well. Do you mean like with the fans thing you touched upon? Do you mean? Not so much fans, just the way street art in general is perceived as like kind of like um, a commercial art or yeah, just the stigmatism that comes with like street art and how it's perceived. Like graffiti always has its core ideas of uh, rebellion and anti-commercialism at, at its core, but street art, I think has uh, has kind of drifted away from those roots into more commercial sense, and that I think kind of puts a bit of a stain on it sometimes. Okay. And in terms of other artists, could you recommend to our listeners one artist that you think people, maybe one artist each that you really think people should go out onto the streets and check out? I feel like streetwise, you know, we've just been talking about this lately. It's there's so little activity these days that we feel like we really see. Um, I almost feel like we're a little less connected to like who's doing interesting things on the street. Also, I think, you know, just having been around it for so long, it's, we've seen so much, you know, and yeah, I don't know that the streets are always in, as inspiring to us like that from another, from other artist standpoints, you know, other than like our peers, which I still, you know, love to see the work that, that they all do but those are all people that everyone would know so um i think we're probably more inspired by painters and things like that these days and going to see shows like that i can't i i got i got nothing go put on a good album and make something yourself <laughs> uh scroll through instagram you'll be inspired enough and quickly enough and uh you know there's just i feel like there's so much great work out there i'm blanking i got put on the spot who are the guys from israel that i like that broken fingers Fingers, broken fingers. Oh yeah, yeah. They're a collective out of Tel Aviv. I really love. I love. Uh, I love what they've been doing, and um, yeah, mostly painters. That said, okay. Peter Saul, right? 
Revoke just had a great show in, in Detroit. I'm really inspired by what he's been making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those artists that uh, can translate from street to studio and, and, you know, again, have that cyclical part of their practice is always super fascinating for us to see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, and if you could design one handout, say it was like a, a pamphlet that was going to be at an art school for students to really sort of take away with one main bit of guidance, or perhaps it's a, like an art workshop, uh, it can be anything that you want it to be. What what would that be? Uh, probably a workshop on process. Yeah. From ideation to doing. Yeah. Right. I think that's really the cool. most important thing is, is again, it's how do you take an idea and make it a reality, whether that's a mock-up or a sketch or, um, I mean, it's just amazing how, you know, like a maquette or whatever, just really understanding this idea of how do you take an idea and present it to somebody to help make a reality and what it looks like to do that. I mean, there's the simple fun of just making what, which is also just gathering a bunch of elements and, and chopping them up and cutting them together and and then drawing back into them and, and creating something from that. I guess it's really just that idea again, that there's so much to be inspired by around you and, and trying to, gather collect and and then do you know that that should keep you busy for a long long time i think also being able to identify like process along the way and just seeing things that are where possibilities lie within the making that you know you always think about getting from point a to point b but there's these little uh things that happen along the way when you're making something that can lead off to other bodies of works or other ideas and it's just trying showing how to like maybe be open to that or see those possibilities within the process cool have you got anything on no thank you so much i've really um i really sort of love listening to you and i do feel as a sort of newbie student i feel very inspired um so thank you for all that you said oh right on good luck with the making absolutely thanks for taking the time yeah thanks so much for joining us and uh good luck i know you, you got a print release on thursday i believe so i hope that thank goes you. well yeah thanks for giving us the opportunity to uh also just talk about this stuff it's it's always great to be able to share the things we've learned along the way and uh it's nice for the both of us to have those moments and document it so and thanks for interviewing everyone it's been fun to listen to the show oh uh, cool thank you Thanks for listening to Artcast. Today we were joined by Fail and Karen Mulville from our Access to HE and Art and Design at the Chelsea Centre. You can check out Fail's work at fail.net, which also has a mailing list so you can sign up for their future print releases, has an archive of their exhibitions. For the next episode, we'll be joined by Matthew Stone. Matthew Stone.